Mark 1, 16 through 45. All right, well, last time we looked at Mark's prologue, kind of down through verse 15. It was his introduction to Jesus' ministry, and we saw the ministry of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. We saw Jesus' commissioning in his baptism in the Jordan River. We saw his preparation in the wilderness, and we saw the beginning of his preaching and teaching as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom and called people to repent and believe. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 1. So verses 16 to 45. You could call this 48 hours in Capernaum, though the last little section is actually going to stretch beyond that frame of reference. But for the most part, what we see today are several short little stories, short little accounts that all take place in or around this one small city along the Sea of Galilee in a very short amount of time. So here's the parts to the story that we will see today. Verses 16 to 20, Jesus calls the first disciples. Verses 21 to 28, Jesus casts out an unclean spirit. Verses 29 to 31, Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Verses 32 to 34, Jesus heals many others. Verses 35 to 39, Jesus preaches in Galilee. And then verses 40 to 45, Jesus heals a leper. So that's where we are going to spend our time. And the majority of our time will probably be on those first two because there's a little bit more to them. Um, because it's a longer text, I'm not going to read the whole thing all at once. We're just going to kind of read it part by part as we go. So let's start in Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. Follow along as I read. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Just side note here. When it refers to Simon, that's Peter. So sometimes you'll see him referred to as Peter. Sometimes Simon Peter, occasionally Cephas. But Simon, Simon Peter, Peter, Cephas, that's all the same person. Okay. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. All right, so let's start with the setting. We are, Mark tells us here, alongside the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee. You have kind of a, maybe a satellite image there. And then on the map, you can see it's up here. The Jordan River runs down to the Dead Sea. But the Sea of Galilee up here in the north is where our setting is today. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long from north to south and about seven miles wide from east to west. It is a, a sea that is known for its fish. The fish are plentiful there and in the Roman world of that day they were prized. They were shipped all around the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a very busy sea because of that. In fact, a few years after our story here, and just before um, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, when the Romans come in in AD 68, they commandeered, history tells us, 250 boats for their own use on the Sea of Galilee. So that gives you an idea of just how busy the Sea of Galilee is. Now, what 
Simon and Andrew, or Peter and Andrew, are doing when Jesus comes is a certain kind of fishing. There's a couple different kinds of fishing that are common to the Sea of Galilee. What they're doing is cast net fishing. So they have a net. It's round, kind of like a parachute, and you would cast it out on the water. You'd maybe stand in the shallow part. You cast it out. It lands flat on the water. It has weights all around the edges, and so it begins to sink down like a, like a parachute through the water, and it traps whatever fish it kind of lands on at the bottom. And then the fishermen would jump in, dive down, gather it up, and you know, trap all those fish in it and drag it back up to the top and then sort out what was in the net. The ones they wanted to keep, they would keep, and then the ones that they didn't want or trash or whatever else you'd throw back in. That's the kind of fishing that is going on as Jesus calls these fishermen and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, Mark says that this is, you know, while they're passing along the Sea of Galilee. That's actually an important phrase because every time Mark shows us Jesus calling disciples, he's by the sea. And there's a, an imagery there that Mark wants us to kind of get our mind around. Now, last week, we saw Jesus' baptism, and that called to mind the Holy Spirit and the sea, because Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, and then we have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And we kind of went back through places in Scripture where we've seen something similar. The creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then what happens? The Spirit of God brings life out of the waters. It's a creation. A few chapters later in Genesis, after sin has kind of spread through the world, and God says he's going to judge the world with a flood, the flood waters cover the earth. And then Noah from the boat sends out the dove and the dove eventually returns with an olive branch and then returns or goes out and doesn't return. And the, the, the idea there is, okay, now we know it's time for us to be able to exit the boat because the new creation or the recreation has appeared from the waters. In Israel's history, they're in slavery in Egypt, that land of death, but God brings them out through the waters of the Red Sea and he creates them, forms them into a new nation. This idea of being brought out of the waters is associated with new creation. So Jesus, when he's baptized, he comes up out of the waters and the Spirit of God descends on him. And he's filled with the Spirit and he's going to go bring about a new creation. Now he's doing it because he's by the sea calling out disciples away from the sea to form this new creation, the church. They will be the foundation of it. And so Mark's language, his little details like that are important for us to realize. You see that here in chapter 1. When we get to chapter 2, you'll see Levi or Matthew called and his calling has nothing to do with the sea, but Mark tells us that Jesus was by the sea and then went and called Levi. Chapter 3, same kind of thing happens again. Jesus withdrew to the sea and then went up on a mountain and appointed the twelve. Well, we don't need to know that he went by the sea, except that Mark says this is a detail you need to get because Jesus is calling his disciples. So the calling of the twelve is the beginning of a new creation, the church. And Jesus calls these first four disciples to follow him. 
This is what we call discipleship. And in the ancient Near East, rabbis did not do this. They would travel around and teach, but they did not call disciples. It was the other way around. Disciples would go to a rabbi and say, I want to follow you. May I follow you? Jesus seeks out these men. He calls them. Just as Jesus was called by the Holy Spirit, right? We have Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit in his baptism. He's commissioned. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, goes and calls these disciples. Have you ever read the stories of the calling of the disciples and wondered, why do they respond so quickly? It seems so like abrupt. If you got a knock on your door and it's somebody that you've never seen before who said, I'm running for president, can I count on your vote? What would you say? If you're like me, you'd probably say, uh, no, I don't even know who you are. I don't know what you stand for, or what you believe. Why would I vote for you? And yet these disciples seem to respond to Jesus quickly. Part of the reason for that is we're not reading the whole story. We're not getting all of the information that we have in our minds. Because we, we, we read this as if Jesus had some kind of you know, magnetic personality that people just were forced to respond to. Or it's some kind of Jedi mind trick. These are not the fish you're looking for. And Jesus calls them away. John tells us that Andrew was originally a disciple of John, the Baptist. So when Jesus came down to the Jordan River and John even encourages his own disciples to follow Jesus, that's who we're talking about. It's Andrew. And Andrew goes and tells Peter. And they live in Capernaum. And Jesus has been around this area. He's not new to them. They already know who he is. They already have heard him teach. They, they already know that this is the successor to John. This is the one John wanted us to follow. So when Jesus calls them, it's not blind. They are acting with some knowledge here. But now it's like, okay, now it's time. And so they leave their nets and they follow him. Jesus seems to have made Capernaum, and we'll see this in the next scene, his base of operations. In other words, they are to a pretty good extent familiar with him. They, they've heard him teach. They know what he's all about to some extent, but they don't understand it all. As the book of Mark goes on, that part becomes really clear. They don't get it. They don't understand. They know him. They've heard him teach. They know something. They don't get it all. Jesus says he will make them fishers of men. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably just thought of that in terms of evangelism. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to go out, you're going to spread the good news, and you're going to invite people in to follow Jesus. And that is true. But there's another aspect to it that we sometimes miss. Because in the Old Testament, God is the fisher of men. And when he appoints men to be fishers of men, it re it's really clear in the Old Testament that fishing is judgment. It's not just an invitation to the good news part of it. It's judgment. So let me just give you one example of several. This is Jeremiah 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. 
for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. There you can see the idea that the fishing is judgment. Now, you've got Mark 1 open in front of you. Look at verses 2 and 3 that we saw last time. If we have that quote in mind, remember that quote we said came from Isaiah and Malachi and Exodus, all kind of mashed together? Isaiah, it's in the context of blessing. Malachi, it's in the context of judgment. This good news message is a message of both blessing and judgment. It depends on which side of the line you're standing on. If we have that in mind, then we can understand that the function of these fishers of men that Jesus is calling will be to proclaim the message of the gospel, which, like John's message, confronts men with a decision. And that can result in blessing or it can result in judgment. Just to make this even a little bit more clear, think of the imagery of fishing and what we just described as to how they're going about their fishing and listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. That's what's going on when Jesus says he's going to make these men fishers of men. It's a message that is both blessing and judgment. Now, one of the things that I, um, I think is a helpful thing for us to consider as you read this radical call to discipleship is to ask the question, are there limits to what Jesus calls people to do? Are there limits to discipleship? I mean, Jesus clearly takes precedence over their livelihood and to some extent family, right? Because Peter and Andrew leave their nets James and John leave their father. When we get over to chapter 10 of Mark, we'll find Peter saying, we have left everything and followed you. But we need to recognize sometimes that's just a, a convention of speech. It's a way of speaking. Did Peter really leave everything? Well, yes and no. I want you to understand this because I don't want you to, to, to think that, that the call to discipleship is something other than what it really is, okay? So in Mark 1, we see today, Simon, Peter, and Andrew still have their house. Immediately, he, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. They didn't leave their house. They still have the house. Jesus uses it as a base of operation. So they didn't leave that. When you get to the end of the gospel story, John tells us that Simon Peter said to them, this is, you know, after, um, after the resurrection or after the crucifixion, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. In other words, they still have the fishing boat and their fishing equipment. Now, they left it behind for a time to follow Jesus, but they didn't totally forsake 
the occupation of fishing altogether. They still have the stuff. We can also see when we come to what Paul says to the church in Corinth, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? So Paul seems to specifically indicate that Peter did not leave behind his wife, but brought her along as he followed Christ or as he carried out his apostolic ministry. So when we say to leave family, to leave your livelihood, it does mean that Jesus takes precedence over all of those things. It doesn't mean being irresponsible or forsaking promises that you had made. Do you see, Peter's married. He doesn't forsake his wife in order to follow Jesus. We have to understand the call to discipleship as Jesus intends it, not um, maybe an imaginary, over-spiritualized version of it. And by the way, um, if you have a, a Catholic background, this may be a helpful verse to think about here. Just the idea that Simon Peter himself was married in opposition to what the Catholic Church teaches about celibacy for those who are in ministry today. Okay, so let me just summarize it this way. What is the call to follow Jesus? The call to follow Jesus represents a decisive change of lifestyle and priorities. Okay. It's a decisive change of lifestyle and priorities. This is now the thing we're doing. Let's go on to the next um, account here. Verses 21 to 28, we see that Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. And here's what it says. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Well, again, let's get the setting. We saw that we are around the Sea of Galilee. Now, specifically, it's Capernaum. And so you can see there where Capernaum is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> it is um, right along one of the major Roman roads, the Via Maris, that runs from the Mediterranean plain out to Damascus. And so there, it was a trade route. It was heavily um, uh, populated. You know, people are coming and going all the time there. It's a significant enough town that it has a detachment of Roman troops who are stationed there. It has a customs post and a resident Roman official who is there. It's the largest town in the region. You could call it a city, okay? Now, what we know from archaeology is that the city, this is a reconstruction, this is not a, a photograph, obviously, but it had a seawall 
along the harbor there that was about a mile long, it was about eight feet high, and then um, a series of hundred foot long piers that went out into the Sea of Galilee. This is um, a synagogue, not the one that Jesus was in, but this is one from the fourth century. So a couple hundred years after Jesus, this is the synagogue there in Capernaum. But the one that he would have been in would have been very similar to it. And in fact, if you look at the foundation of this one, and we go in a little bit closer here, you can see the, the white is that current fourth century synagogue. The black basalt stone down here is the foundation of an earlier synagogue, and that is the one that Jesus entered. So we know exactly where this was. We have the foundation of the synagogue that is here in our story uh, in Mark chapter 1. In, the, in those days, a synagogue leader would grant a visiting teacher, a visiting rabbi, the right to come in and teach. And so that's what's happening here. Jesus is granted the right to teach by the synagogue leaders. And so he comes in and does that. Now, also in Capernaum, you see this modern structure that we have here. This is actually a church that is also a historical site, but it is built on kind of pillars over top of an archaeological site. And the site underneath it is Peter's house. We're actually reasonably certain that it is Peter's house because it matches the description of what happened there. It has a courtyard where people could gather. We know there was a church that met there in the early years after Jesus. And there's written on the walls the names Jesus and Peter. And so we have a pretty reasonable certainty that this is Peter's house. So the church that's there above it has like a glass floor so that people can look down and see it without touching it and destroying what's left of it. But that's um, also there in Capernaum. And then what you see out here, those are the remains of other houses. You're just seeing the rooms and the walls there of those homes. That's a little bit of a close-up there of what's underneath that modern church. So that's Peter's house right there. Now, what Jesus does here in this scene is he comes into the synagogue and immediately there's this confrontation with a demon, an unclean spirit. And part of it has to do with Jesus' identity and part of it has to do with his authority. So Jesus' identity is given to us by the demon. The demon calls Jesus the Holy One of God. He recognizes him, which is interesting because in Mark, he's showing us that all the people don't recognize who Jesus ultimately is, but the demons know he's the Holy One of God. Now there's one, only one other person in all of scripture who is called the Holy One of God. It's very interesting. I wouldn't have remembered this, and I'm guessing if I gave you 10 guesses, you wouldn't guess who it is either. Judges chapter 16, Samson is called the Holy One of God because he has this power. He's this divine warrior who has come as a judge to rescue God's people. And so the demons recognize the character of Jesus as the strong one, the mighty one who has come to rescue his people. Now, the demon, though, obeys Jesus' word. When Jesus speaks, the demon obeys. That tells you something of Jesus' authority. And it's echoes of the story of David here, too, because if you think of the story of David, Samuel anointed David. David was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then David went and he ministered to Saul and soothed Saul when he was being um, kind of attacked by that unclean spirit. 
Well, here Jesus is baptized by John. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the first miracle thing we see him doing is casting out this unclean spirit. So he's very much kind of in the mold of what we saw happen with David in the Old Testament. The demon is called an unclean spirit. And I think that's in contrast to the Holy Spirit that is in Jesus. Right, so Jesus has the Holy Spirit. Here we have an unclean spirit. But the big question that you have to ask as you're reading this is, why is there a demon in the synagogue? Doesn't that seem like an odd place for a demon to be? I mean, if someone asked you today where you could go to likely find a demon, would you suggest that they look in a church? Maybe you would, depending on the church. I don't know. But seven times in the book of Mark, we find a demon in a synagogue. Why? What is Mark communicating to us? Well, I think that strong association in Mark's mind is because he wants you to see that official Israel, religious establishment of Israel, is following Satan. They are in opposition to Jesus. They are oppressed by demons. The synagogue throughout the book will be seen as a place of opposition to Jesus, a place where there are hard hearts, a place where Jesus' followers will be persecuted. Jesus here teaches, it says, as one who has authority, not like the scribes. Well, where did the scribes' authority come from? Later in the book, we will see that it comes from the tradition of the elders. But Jesus' authority, we've already seen where it comes from. The Father has spoken from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Jesus has been filled with the Holy Spirit. So he has the authority that comes from God the Father and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's where Jesus' authority comes from and the people can see the difference. And the results here, of course, the man is restored to fellowship. He's restored to wholeness. He's restored to God's presence. Jesus' authority is seen in casting out the demon, but particularly that authority is in his word. There's no technique, there's no spells, there's no symbolic act, although later he will do some of those things. Here, in this first one, it's just his word. The next story, then, verses 29 to 31 says this, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Well, first of all, you've got this word that Mark loves to use, immediately. But here, I think it, it I just want you to see geographically where this happens, Okay. Here's the synagogue that I showed you before, and there's Peter's house. So literally, you walk out the synagogue, you're just a few steps away from Peter's house. So when it says, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, it's not kidding. It's right there, okay? Now, Peter's mother-in-law, of course, as we pointed out, that tells us that Peter is married, okay? But Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus heals her and he lifted her up, or some translations say raised her up. It's the language of resurrection. It's not that she was dead, but the way that Mark tells the story as if it's in the language of resurrection. And he does this with a lot of the different restorations or healings. So even 
Like somebody that's not able to stand, they are told to rise. Right? So it's, it's that kind of language for Mark, which means all of those restorations are pointers to spiritual resurrections, new life, new creation, you could say. When Jesus restores someone, what does he restore them to? What does Peter's mother-in-law do? Immediately she began to serve them. Is this Jesus just being self-serving? He wants something to eat, so I'll heal Peter's mother-in-law so that she can fix us some dinner. It's not that. It's that this is her calling. This is her vocation. This is what she does. And so when you're restored by Jesus, you're restored to service. And you're going to see that throughout the book of Mark. It's vocation. It's calling. You're not restored simply as an end in itself. You're restored to do something, to serve. And that's a lesson for all of us. The next set of verses then, verses 32 to 34, we see Jesus heals many others. So that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So everybody waits until sundown because it's the Sabbath. And so they don't want to violate the Sabbath procedures. And so they wait until the end, till sundown, and then they bring people to Jesus. And it says the whole city is gathered at the door. Now, not literally, okay, that's a, Mark's using the expression the way we would in conversation. Everybody was there. And there's this massive response, right? Jesus preaches the news of the kingdom. He heals people. And there's this massive response. And um, this seems like success, and that's the way we tend to think today in churches as well, right? There's preaching, there's things happening, and a whole bunch of people show up. But that's not success. Because what isn't happening here is repentance. Jesus' message is repent and believe. But there's no repentance indicated here. And that's a vital part of Jesus' message. And it becomes clearer as we continue on into the next section. Verses 35 to 39. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So when Mark says that Jesus went out to a desolate place, it's literally the wilderness. Same as we saw earlier in the chapter, where John is and where Jesus goes out to after his baptism. He goes out into the wilderness. It's the same word. And the confusing thing is that if you were in Capernaum in Jesus' day, there is no wilderness there. It's all cultivated around there. So what is Mark getting at? He's telling you, he wants you to connect it back to Jesus' preparation in the wilderness before. This is Jesus going back to what he was called to do, his mission. So he goes out to a solitary place. It's desolate in the sense that there's no people there. 
But just like after his baptism, he went out and he was getting ready for his ministry, here, again, it's calling our minds back to Jesus' mission. So, when Peter comes out and he says, everyone's looking for you, his words have the tone of reproach. Hey, you shouldn't be out here. You're missing a big opportunity. Everybody wants you. This is your chance to build the kingdom. But they misunderstand the kingdom. They misunderstand Jesus' purpose. And that theme continues throughout the whole book of Mark. The people want him not because of the message, but because of the miracles, the healings, casting out demons. Jesus measures success differently. It's not about numbers and crowds for him. Otherwise, he would have gone back to Capernaum. But what does he say? Let's move on to another town so that I can preach this message. What message? The message we saw before back in verses 14 and 15, the message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus says, I need to preach that message because that's why I came out. Jesus measures success differently than we do. Then the last little account in chapter 1, verses 40 to 45, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Leprosy is a condition, maybe an umbrella term for a number of different conditions, but the, the important thing to understand about it is this. According to the Old Testament law, someone with leprosy is contagious and they have to stay away from people. You're required to stay at a distance. You are unclean. You're not able to carry out all the normal worship ex, you know, experiences and processes that you normally would if you were just a regular part of the community. And that separation, that distance, is symbolic of the effects of sin. You're separated from the presence of God because you are unclean. This leper's actions would be, in Jesus' day, offensive. Because he comes right up to Jesus. He's not supposed to do that. What's Jesus' response? Now, here we get into a translation issue. There's two translation issues in this little section. And um, when I mention this, it's not because I want, I'm not trying to shake your confidence in the English Bible that you have in front of you. Because the translation you have in front of you is a good one and you can trust it. There are times the translators kind of wrestle with how to say something and they go with what seems to make sense. I'm always a little bit suspicious when it's not the natural translation of things, you know, the way that you, you would think it should get translated. And there's a couple of those in this story. And I think if we understand what Jesus or what Mark is actually saying, it, it opens up the story for us. It helps us to understand. So one of those things is this. 
Mark says in our English translation that Jesus was moved with pity. Verse 41. Well, the word doesn't mean pity. Um, a better translation is Jesus was moved with indignation. He's angry. Now, he's not angry at the leper. He's angry at the devastating results of sin in the world. He's angry at seeing the destruction and the separation that sin has caused in God's creation. He's indignant at it. He's indignant at what the demons have done in Israel, the destruction that they work. In classical literature, the word that's used here describes barely controlled animal fury. Okay, that gives you an idea of what Jesus is feeling here. He's indignant, he's angry at the effects, the destructive effects of sin in the world. Now, you know he's not angry at the leper because what does he do? He touches him. For anyone else, this would make the person doing the touching unclean if you touched someone with leprosy. But it doesn't do that to Jesus. Jesus won't actually become unclean because when Jesus touches him, the leprosy's gone. He's healed. But I want you to see this. Jesus does experience the separation that is symbolized in the leprosy. What's the result of this for Jesus? Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. That's exactly the condition of a leper. A leper can't openly enter a town. So now the leper can come into the town. Jesus can't come into the town. Mark is not really saying that Jesus is somehow unclean and he can't go in, he, but he's kind of hinting at the idea that Jesus is taking this man's stigma on himself. There's a substitution element to what's going on here that Mark is hinting at. The man was an outsider, now he's an insider. Jesus had been inside, now he's got to stay on the outside. He kind of takes the man's place. The other translation thing that I think makes things a little bit confusing, at the end of verse 44, uh, Jesus has told him to, take, to go to the priest and take what the law requires, in other words, an offering, and it says, for a proof to them. But that same phrase, for a proof to them, later in Mark, when we get to Mark 6, Jesus is sending out his disciples. Here's what Jesus says, Mark 6, verse 11. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. I think that's what Mark is saying here in Mark 1, that Jesus says to this leper. Take the offering that the law requires and go to the priest and offer it, and it will be a testimony against them. Now why? What does that mean? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. When the man who had leprosy shows up in front of the priest, what do the priests have to do? They have to examine him. Is the leprosy really gone? So they're going to examine this man and they're not going to find a thing because he's been healed. And they're going to accept the offering. And Jesus says, the very fact that they've inspected you and there's nothing wrong, 
and they accept the sacrifice is evidence that the healing was real. But those same people, those religious leaders, are going to reject the very person who did the healing. And the fact that they themselves testified that the healing was real and they accepted the sacrifice, that will stand as a testimony against them in their rejection of the one who actually did the healing. They're rejecting Jesus without cause, in other words. Mark is showing us Jesus, again, in confrontation with official Israel, with the Jerusalem temple, with those who reject him as Messiah. Now, we had this string of little stories through, through, here through Mark 1. Let me just kind of go back and summarize a few of the themes that we have seen as we've looked at them. One theme is the theme of new creation. Mark points out that Jesus calls the disciples by the sea. So remember the, the, the symbolism there, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters at creation brings out the creation. The dove over the waters of the flood, new creation or recreation. Israel coming up through the waters of the Red Sea. It's a new nation, a new creation. Jesus and his baptism, the Spirit comes as he comes up out of the waters and Jesus will bring a new creation. Now we have Jesus by the sea calling disciples because they will be the foundation of this new creation. A second theme is spiritual warfare. Jesus is facing temptation and opposition from Satan in the wilderness earlier in the chapter. And now when he goes out, he's confronting demons. He's casting them out. And that spiritual opposition is going to be there throughout the book of Mark. It's the very first thing that Mark shows Jesus doing miraculously is exercising his authority over the demons. Because Jesus is the divine warrior who will defeat the spiritual forces of evil on behalf of his people. He will set them free from spiritual captivity. Another theme here is the idea that when you are healed, when you are restored, it is for a purpose. Peter's mother-in-law is restored and she begins serving. That's the kingdom pattern that Jesus is bringing. Salvation is not an end in itself. But we are called, just as Jesus was called, just as the disciples were called, we have a vocation. We are restored in order to serve. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus brings. And then a fourth theme is the idea that this kingdom and this king are unexpected. Different than what people thought. It's not an earthly kingdom setting them free from Rome. It's much bigger than that. It actually encompasses every area of life. And Jesus is an unexpected king. He's not a military ruler like Caesar. He's a king who has come to serve, and he'll do that by laying down his life for his people. So what do we do with this? As you think about those themes, as you think about the stories that we've seen, what difference does it make to you and me? Let me give you three words. Number one, the first word is word. Okay, word. In this text, we see Jesus having authority. Particularly, his word has authority. Cast out demons. 
It's authoritative teaching. And that brings up a good question for us to ask ourselves. Does Jesus' word have that same authority in my life? Do I believe and obey his word? Do I accept what Jesus says in every area of my life? Or do I keep some areas of my life under my own authority? Word. Secondly, disciple. We say our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. Well, these first disciples seem to have come to following Jesus with their own ideas of what that was going to mean. They try to correct Jesus when he doesn't seem to be taking advantage of the opportunity of the gathering crowd like they think he should. But Jesus is the rabbi. He's the master. He sets the agenda. And so as disciples, we need to learn humility. We need to be open to whatever following Jesus is going to look like according to his rules. It very well may not have the measure of earthly success. But that's not the standard that Jesus uses to measure. The third word is service. If we have been restored, saved, brought into the kingdom, it is for service. Jesus restores his people and puts them into service. So what is your calling? What is your vocation? What is it that God calls you to do? What's your unique place in your family, in your community, in your workplace, in your circle of friends? How has God called you to serve? Because if he's restored you, if he's given you new life, spiritual resurrection, it's not an end in itself. He's called you for a purpose. So what's your vocation? How will you serve? Jesus' word, authority in our lives, discipleship, following Jesus in humility, and service. If he's saved me, it's for me to do something. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these stories that we have in the Gospel of Mark as we see what Jesus did in his ministry here on earth. And I pray that you'd help us as we try to come to understand those stories, that we would see Jesus for who he is and that we would understand the difference that that makes in our lives as we discover together what it means to follow Jesus. Help us to be faithful followers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.